0: This is episode 29 with Fisher Neal on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Think about this for a second. More Americans hunt and fish than play baseball. What a trip, right? I mean, that's more than 38 million Americans, guys. And if that doesn't surprise you, this will. Hunting, overall, brought in more revenue than both Google and the Goldman Sachs Group. Check that out. So that's $38.3 billion versus that of Google, which brought in $37.9 billion. That's crazy. Now, ask yourself this question. Why don't I hunt? And really think about this for a second. Mold around for a few minutes, hours, days, whatever, but really think. Is it because the blood, guts, and sinew? Is it your ethics or morality? Is it the fact that you live in a city or suburb and feel like you don't have access to the wild spaces needed to hunt? Or maybe it's as simple as a lack of money for all that expensive new gear. Whatever your reason, hunting is a huge undertaking in and of itself, period. And for the novice not accustomed to growing up in the hunting lifestyle, the process of learning and developing this fundamental life skill can seem downright intimidating. However... Should you join me and others and accept the hunt's call to bravely enter the chase, you will be handsomely rewarded with the first-hand experience of accepting another animal's life into your own. This experience often catalyzes into a deep, life-altering relationship between you, the natural world, and the entire two-legged and other-than-human community. And to make this particular transition easier, I've invited my newest friend, Fisher Neal of LearnToHuntNYC.com on today's episode of Ancestral Health Radio. So guys, listen up. In today's episode, you'll learn the absolute first thing you should do if you're interested in learning to hunt, what a typical day of hunting might look like for the average hunter, the basic yet graphic process of how to field dress, skin, and butcher a deer from start to finish, and much more. Much more. Fisher Neal is the owner of Learn to Hunt NYC, the only hunting guide service that specializes in teaching people who have never hunted in their lives how to go out and harvest wild game on their own. Based just outside of Manhattan in New Jersey City, New Jersey, Fisher takes first-time hunters for in-field hunting and shooting lessons, foraging trips, and fully outfitted hunts for deer and wild turkey. Fisher is also a professional actor and a contributing columnist with Paleo Magazine. Fisher, welcome. Thank you for joining me and the tribe on another exciting episode of Ancestral Health Radio. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for you to be here, man. This is a really awesome opportunity, not only for myself, but for the audience to really kind of get the nuts and bolts of what it takes to really be a hunter, or at least to begin wanting to become a hunter, right? We need some education. We need some awareness. We need to kind of know what we're doing. So I'm glad to have you on. It was kind of interesting how we met. Actually, I didn't meet you directly, right? I met you through somebody else who was helping you. And Mm -hmm. It was serendipitous. You know, it was like I was looking for somebody to talk about hunting and somebody had just messaged me, hey, uh, would you be willing to have this gentleman, Fisher Neal, learn to hunt, nyc.com. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like a perfect fit. Let's do it. And then come to find out you also happen to be a paleo guy. You're, you're into taking care of yourself and you've got a unique story. So I thought maybe what we could do is just kind of open that up and you can share with the audience exactly how it is you got into hunting and what exactly your background is.
1: Yeah, so um, I'm kind of a weirdo. (laughs) Aren't we all? I'm not like the other children. Um, I I got raised in uh, East Tennessee. I grew up in Knoxville. My dad was from a rural town in West Tennessee, and uh, in his college days had started hunting, and so he was a pretty avid hunter by the time I was born. And um, some of my earliest memories are of him, like, going away for the weekend and coming home like with a deer, you know, that he had shot with a bow. And I was immediately fascinated with it and obsessed with it from many years before I could actually hunt. And, um, you know, he he was more than happy and willing to uh, bring my brothers and I along with him. So as soon as we were old enough, we started going out with him, the first thing we ever did was dove hunting, um, which is a great thing for kids because you don't really have to be quiet or sit still that much, you know, and, and you can participate, you know, there's like lots of birds. And when dad shoots one, you can play retriever and go and, uh, fetch the dove, which is really fun, you know, not, so I was doing that probably at, you know, the age of five, I guess. Um, and then within a year or two of that, we were old enough to, uh, sit still enough that, um, he would take us deer hunting. So I got to uh, witness that and, and was going along with him on occasional trips for years until I took the hunter education course when I was, I think nine or 10 years old, um, started hunting, you know, deer and dove hunting. And it was a couple of years, I think I was 11 when I got my first deer. And then, um, you know, after that, it was just been, I've been obsessed with hunting ducks and deer and turkeys pretty much since that time. Um, and then, uh, so in like high school I got into doing theater and, um, you know, ended up deciding that that's what I wanted to pursue as a professional career. So all of a sudden I was thrust into, you know, I I had been raised in this, you know, red state hunting culture. And now all of a sudden I was, uh, Thrusting myself into um, like the most liberal culture city oriented people that you possibly can really, um, and that led to uh, really surprising and interesting interactions because you know a, a lot of people who you know hunted with me had thought, Oh well, you you know especially like when I came to New York, they're like, Oh, does everybody hate you up there, and I was really surprised to find out as I continue to discover just the number of people in cities who are actually like hungry to learn how to hunt and think that, you know, this is a really exciting and ethical and healthy and sustainable way to get your meat. And um, and it's really because that I was a professional actor and came to New York City that, um, you know, led me to finally start offering lessons because so many people just You know, people were all the time saying, man, I really want to learn. I want to learn. And I was like, you know, as a professional actor, you always need some kind of side hustle. You're bartending, you're this, you're that. Um, And I was like, well, I should just build a website and offer, you know, and if people are willing to pay me, I'm willing to take off work and go. And um, I would much rather teach people how to hunt than uh, bartend. So, you know, that pretty much, um, that's pretty much what led me to be where I'm at now.
0: Well, that's amazing. Can I just congratulate you on that for a second? Because there's not too many people that would just say, you know what? All right. um, I've got this, I got this gift, you know, hunting. I'm really good at it, but I'm really passionate on this other side about, you know, drama and acting and really getting, getting what I feel like I should be doing out there, right? Many people, they'll just get any old job, like you said, get a bartending job, whatever, compromise their health, and then just leave kind of their passion off there to the side. So, I just want to congratulate you for like taking that step forward and reclaiming kind of your time sovereignty there as well as your like passion sovereignty, because not many people do that and bridge that divide. And that's kind of what I'm doing here. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you on to talk about this, because that's cool, because we're kind of kindred spirits in that respect. <laughs> so we've got a lot to learn from each other. So that's great. All right. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit of, of light on that. And especially the fact that people in New York were very receptive, you know, to this idea of hunting, you know, because people who grow up in an atmosphere that don't necessarily have that as a background, you know, like you said, they don't grow up in a red state or whatever, where people are accustomed to hunting, like myself, for example, you know, I don't have anybody to turn to for this type of knowledge. There is nobody. So when somebody says, oh yeah, I'm a hunter, immediately my ears turn up, you know, I'm full focused on them and I want to ask them a ton of questions. So this is a really great opportunity for me to do so. So Fisher, let's dive in, man. Yeah. All right. So you were mentioning one of the first things that we need to be doing when learning about how to hunt or gaining this passion for hunting is, is what? What is the first thing that you think that maybe our audience should be doing in that respect? Is it education? Do we need to be finding a mentor? What would you say?
1: Absolutely, the first step is to run a Google search for hunter education in your state. And inevitably, that is going to bring you to the website of your state fish and game where they will have information about classes for uh, the hunter education course. Mm -hmm. Um, Hunter education course is mandatory for getting a hunting license in any state. Um, And it also has reciprocity across all the states. So once you've taken it, you never have to take it again for the rest of your life. As long as you don't lose the little piece of paper they give you. Um, And that. That course, so in in every state has their own rules, right? So it's a little bit different. In some places, you can do it entirely online now. But in most places, that will require you to set up an appointment ahead of time to go to a class. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have to do homework ahead of time, which usually is able to be done online. And then you go in for a full day of classes, um, and then you take a paper test And you also go for a field test where they make sure that you can, you know, with a relative degree of competency and safety, uh, fire a gun and or a bow depending on what you're going to be hunting with. Um, and you know, there's other discrepancies in that, like some States, like particularly up here in the Northeast, they're, they're much more particular than they are, say, where I grew up in Tennessee. Um, so when I first went to graduate school in Connecticut, um, I did my, my acting at the, the Yale drama program up there, and uh, I had taken the hunter safety course when I was 10 years old or nine years old in Tennessee, and it's just a comprehensive hunter safety course up there, but in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, you have to have a special bow certification in order to go bow hunting, so I actually had to take hunter safety all over again just to get my um, my bow hunter course
0: no, well, I love it. that they did that. I think it's important that they do that, you know, honestly. Uh, and especially if you were 10 when the last time you did it, I mean, uh, and that was a, that was a question too, is like, what are the age ranges? What age can you start hunting? And I'm sure there really isn't an age limit, you know, as far as when you want to start when you get older. So what, what is the earliest you can begin hunting at?
1: Um, you know, it actually depends on what state you're in. Some states have minimum ages that are usually around like 10 or 12, But uh, actually, some state, maybe Wisconsin actually recently made the news for um, like the national news for um, removing the like minimum age limit. Um, In other words, uh, it's it's ultimately up to the parent to be the one to determine when the child is uh, ready. Um, So, you know. Yeah, and in some states, uh, a youth hunter like that can hunt without having taken the hunter education course as long as they are accompanied by, you know, an adult mentor. Um, In some cases, you know, in most cases, even if they have taken the course until they're like 12, they're not allowed to hunt without an an accompanying mentor. Um, But, um, you know, I've heard of kids, you know, ages like seven and eight years old shooting deer, you know, if you have a, an appropriately sized rifle and you and you teach the kid um, how to safely handle it and you're there with them, it's not, um, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility.
0: Yeah, I think um, I shot my first squirrel when I was maybe in third grade, you know, with yeah. my uncle Olin in Louisiana, Shreveport. Um, if you guys are unfamiliar with that, I did spend some time growing up in the South did get my hands dirty a little bit before I moved to Southern California. So,
1: um,
0: yeah, so I did, I know a little, you know, I, I am a novice, um, but I'm, I'm still learning and it's important that we get all the right things down, the right knowledge and the technical because I know everybody wants to know like the gear, you know, like, Oh, should we get this? Should we get that? It's not about the gear. It's about the knowledge and kind of the awareness that you have when you go into the wild after learning these type of things. So I'm really excited to know beyond just the safety aspect as far as like the, the the gun safety course and the hunting safety course actually, let me back up. What is the difference? Can you kind of run through what exactly they do through the safety courses
1: yeah it's um it's primarily about teaching you gun safety but it also deals with um, you know hunting ethics um, and ac- and acquainting you with the uh, way the hunting regulations work in your your state. Um, but so in addition to like basic, you know, gun safety and bow safety, they're also going to take you through, uh, situational, um, quizzes where they're going to say, you know, is this a situation in which you should pull the trigger, shoot or don't shoot, you know, make the decision in a very short period of time. You know, and then you go back through it with the instructor and the instructor will say, you know, yes, you should, you know, yes, it would have been okay to shoot here or no, there was something about this situation that made it unsafe and you should not pull the trigger in this event. Right. You know, that's situations where like, you know, if you don't know, if you can't be absolutely certain of where your projectile will um, stop, if there's no real good backstop you know say you're shooting at level ground um or or, or you know and there's nothing behind it but maybe there's a road a hundred yards past that you don't want to take that shot or if the the deer or something is up elevated you know at the top of a ridge above you and there's no backstop for your shot that shot could carry for if it's a rifle for you know a mile or two before it comes down who knows where so, uh, things like that, but, and also like uh tree stand safety, the number one place where, uh, people have like really serious injuries in hunting is, uh, falling out of
0: trees. Wow. So less having to do with wild animals and more so having to do with competence.
1: Uh, well, I mean, that's just like, that's just the most dangerous part, you know, like <laughs> no, it's crazy. You, you know, when you're climbing a tree in the dark, you know, when it's wet or icy and you're encumbered by you know heavily insulating clothes and stuff like you know and you're climbing up sometimes i I sometimes hunt 30 feet up okay um so you know if you fall uh from that height uh it it can kill you yeah
0: no absolutely
1: Um, so you know they they do spend a lot of time addressing um how to safely do that okay. stuff.
0: Well that's good because I did just read an article recently as a matter of fact about a 10-year-old hunter. Maybe she was actually it was a female hunter, maybe she was between the ages of 10 and 14, but she was out there with her father and she was out hunting. She sh- she shot something that she believed was a deer, but it was actually an elk. And so Oh yeah. I so saw her something. father in minnesota yeah because i guess apparently this they had just reintroduced elk mm-hmm. and they were only grazing in certain areas but this one had gone wild or feral and then they had accidentally shot it but the proper procedure i guess was correctly taken the father had called immediately whatever station whoever with the tag or however that needed to happen called the rangers and everything got taken care of but that's a a very serious um very serious thing so um sure. I want people to be aware of that that Don't just go out with your buddies with, you know, somebody who's got a gun and go hunt wild game. I mean, it's really important that we understand the infrastructure and how things work so that we can keep things uh, safe for everyone so that everybody can participate.
1: It's also really important for the sustainability of the whole thing. We have a really amazing, you know, system of hunting here in North America um, and the, the way that it is managed and that law enforcement takes place and the way all that, that's funded is entirely f- based on, you know, hunters following the law and purchasing hunting licenses to fund everything.
0: Right. Well, you know what, maybe that moves us on to the next quick topic. It might be like some of the misconceptions people have about hunters. Because that brings to mind, to me at least, the idea that hunters are kind of these guys that, you know, of course there's always going to be the stereotypical few, but for the most part, they're very considerate of where they are, their environment, and the animal. Whereas, you know, most people, from the outside in, they have this idea that, Oh, they're just killing these poor little creatures, right? Like these little animals and just, it's all trophy, you know, it's all trophy hunting, you know, people just want to take pictures with the animals and it's so cruel. However, the ones that are doing it right. Can you speak for those people?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no question that, uh, assholes are everywhere. Um, and hunting is no exception to that. And those kinds of guys are particularly repugnant, but, uh, yeah, the vast majority of hunters are not like that, um, share a great deal of, um, you know, appreciation and enthusiasm for the wild and for the meat that comes out of um, what we do. Um, I think that, uh, well, shoot, now I need you to ask me the question again, because I have lost my train of thought.
0: <laughs> yeah, well... Yes. So, so how exactly, you know, can you speak on behalf of the people that are actually, um, they're hunting in an ethical way. You know, can you shed light on exactly what it takes to hunt in an ethical way, like the work and the process and everything that it takes to actually do this instead of just romping and stomping in your backyard, seeing an animal and shooting it, or going out with your buddies, drinking a couple beers and shooting cans off the thing. And, you know, whatever. This is just all stereotypical that I have because I'm not someone who hunts. But, you know, from the outside in, you know, from somebody who actually does it, uh, can you give us maybe... Um, Just a sneak peek. Can you give us kind of like maybe a a day in the life of? Yeah. So, I mean, a thing that
1: many people don't understand is that uh, a large portion of the work takes place prior to the day of the hunt. You know, like with deer hunting, majority of the time what I'm doing is, yeah, I get up very early in the morning. Um, Particularly in my situation, I live an hour drive from where my hunting grounds are so like the client I took yesterday you know I picked him up at 4 a.m and we drove uh, an hour and 20 minutes out 60 miles and then you know we walk in and get up in the tree stand at like we were in the tree at about 6 a.m you know we sat there until 10 a.m we saw one deer and then we uh, got down we walked around for a while did some scouting in the midday, and also did a little calling to see if we could get one to come off its bed mm. and then we went and take a quick lunch break and a nap, and then back in the woods um at about two o'clock or two thirty um and sat until uh four thirty when we finally saw uh, a deer that that came and uh approached us within range, and you know we took a took a shot at it so um you know but like before that, you know I spend hours on my computer. Um, I do a lot of research on my computer to locate, uh, you know, what areas of the state have the highest populations of deer. I usually focus my hunting there. Um, Then to locate all of the available public lands within that space. Then I go and I um, look at you know, all of the maps that I can find of whatever public lands I think maybe I want to hunt. And I also look at satellite imagery on like Bing maps and Google maps to uh, analyze as best I can the the situation there. And then I make the drive out and I spend a whole day usually um, hiking all around, you know, looking at sign and looking also at, uh, you know, understanding, not understanding, you know, discovering what kind of uh, food is available there you know so like when you look at an image like you see there's trees here and then there's fields here but you don't know is that field hay mm. or is that field corn because right. there's a massive difference between those things and in those trees like is that all poplar trees or uh, is that a giant stand of white oak um, there's a, a massive difference you know are those pine trees that you see on the satellite? like image, is that uh, like white pines that are real tall? Or is that like a dense cedar thicket that a deer might spend a lot of time hiding in? Um, So I go and I hike around and I, I, um, you know, while I'm there, I'm looking at all of this stuff, all the sign that I find, all the food that I find, and then um, choosing a place that I think would be the most ideal place to ambush a deer. Um, And then I go and I hang a tree stand where I think that that will be. And that that process usually takes an hour or two. Um, and then finally, you know, you come back later for an actual sit, you know, to go and sit there and hunt.
0: What does it look like to actually put up a tree stand anyway, considering it's the most dangerous aspect of hunting? I want to know what it actually takes to get one of those things up there.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, there's, there's a few different kinds of tree stand. Um, some are, uh, you know, it, a lot of it just depends on the situation that you're hunting in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're on private lands, a lot of times people put up these, uh, big like enclosed tower stands, which require, you know, you know, you, you need like a truck to get everything in there and right. you know, like power tools to put it together. Um, most of the time what I'm doing is I'm using uh hang on stands is what they're called. Okay. And it's basically, um, just a, uh, a piece of metal that folds up. It's like a pedestal seat with a, you know, a bar that that's on. And then there's like a, you know, a 24 inch square steel platform, um, with cables. And so you just got to get that thing up in the tree and strap it around the tree with some ratchet straps. So it's good and solid. Um, and that's, that's about all there is to it. But so what I do is I, I have a full body harness that I wear. Um, and it has kind of a, uh, like a, I guess I get what they call it, like a lineman's rope. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so like it, it connects on one side with, and it has a carabiner so I can wrap it around the tree and clip it onto the other side of my harness. And so as I'm going in, sometimes I'm using, um, I have these um, portable, basically uh, they call them tree steps. They also, they strap around the tree um, and you can climb up them. And also sometimes I'll use screw in steps. Um, so, you know, you strap one on or you screw it in and then you get on it and you put your thing around there. So now I can stand on that one and I can be hands free to hang the next one. Perfect. And what I'll do, is I'll just like throw those things over my shoulder. And as I climb, I take it off and I clip it on there. Um, And then I go back down and I tie a rope to the tree stand and I climb back up, secure myself to the tree again, hoist up the tree stand, get it secure. Then I get up in the tree stand um, and usually since I'm, you know, I'm, I'm guiding most frequently with these, then I hang a second tree stand and then I all hang right. a, a safety rope and then I hang hooks for everybody to hang their uh, gear and the bow on. Um, you know, like I have a really neat safety rope uh, that's called a lifeline. Okay. And what that does is like, I can clip it up at the top and it has this slip knot with a carabiner on it that goes all the way down to the base of the tree. So when I have a client, I put them in a full body harness too. And they clip into that thing and they slide it up as they go. So if they fall while they're climbing, which is the most dangerous part, that thing actually would catch them. Right. Um, it's pretty cool. And also once you get into the tree, there's no moment of like having to disconnect from that and then connect to the tree. You're just, you're, you're on secure it. From The moment you leave the ground. That's
0: awesome. So do you you primarily hunt deer or is, you know, do you have like a a methodology for what kind of animal that you're going to be hunting? Is it just per season or how does that work for you exactly?
1: Well, some of it is dictated by the season. Some of it's dictated just by what I feel like. Um, And uh, you know, when it comes to guiding, I'm primarily doing deer. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then in the springtime I'll guide for turkey. Um, but, uh, you know, I would guide for some waterfowl, but it it just requires so much equipment. Really? Um, oh yeah. I mean, you know, I live in an apartment in Jersey city, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a struggle just to have enough gear to take people deer hunting and have a space that I can keep it in, you know, to take a person to guide for duck hunting. I need a 16 foot boat with a trailer on it. Wow. you know, at least a couple dozen decoys, you know, with a motor with, uh, you that know, sounds, all okay. this stuff. I need to go and get a Coast Guard captain's license, um, all these things. So, you know, that's just a little bit beyond my... Wow. Mind.
0: Yeah, no, I had no idea about that. That's crazy. And, you know, it, it shocks me because I'm thinking like, okay, we were hunter gatherers, All right. This is something that was part of our DNA and it didn't take very much for us to go do it. Right. We were naturally gifted at this. And now if you know, you didn't grow up with this background, you don't have a family that's involved with this. I mean, just the barrier to entry as far as the gear, just the stuff that you need to get started on top of the licensing and registration and everything, the tags that you need to actually go hunt the animal itself. It seems really like a lot. I mean, how do you feel about all that? do you, I mean, do you wish it was less or more or, you know, do you think like they could improve upon that? Because my thing is barrier to entry. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to lower as many barriers as there are possible because I notice it takes a lot of money to do some of these things, right? Including hunting. So it's funny to me because some of the people that need this information the most aren't the people with the most money. (laughs) Most of the times it's the people with the least amount of money. So do you have any personal personal philosophy or like any, any idea or thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's no question that um, there's a big barrier to entry when it comes to money and access to land. Yes. Um, You know, those are the two, you know, key factors. I mean, and money is related to time as well. Like how much time do you have to be able to devote to scouting? You know, not everybody can spend, you know, a week worth of time scouting ahead of the season and continue to scout during the season and hunt two or three days a week, you know, like not everyone can can afford to take that much time off work. They got yeah.
0: kids. Not everybody is Steven
1: Ranella. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, God bless him. He's awesome. But uh, not everybody, most people aren't able to do that kind of stuff, no matter how much they would want to, um, you know, in terms of like it, there are ways though, that you can get started, you know, and I think that that's the, the key thing is to get started. Right. Um, so many people reach out to me and say, oh my gosh, I'm so interested in this. How can we get get this going? And um, before this year, there's actually really something really exciting that I want to talk about, which is the apprentice license, um, which is a thing that uh, a lot of states are uh, implementing now and has made a huge difference for my business. Um, and what that means is that people can go hunting with a mentor even if they've not taken the hunter education course yet because hunter education course while free it does require um some commitment you know you need to set uh usually a saturday aside ahead of time um and do do some homework and um you know i get a lot of people who would email me and say oh my gosh i really want to go this is amazing when can we go and i would say okay well um you know you you got to go take the hunter education course and then you know i can take you out and in the meantime i can give you a, a lesson i can teach you how to shoot teach you how to identify all this stuff um, and 9 out of 10 of those people i never hear from again yeah it's over so you know i think that uh, e- the barriers to entry the biggest barrier to entry is your desire honestly because it is possible to go deer hunting and squirrel hunting with um, a shotgun that you can get for 200 50 bucks, um, and clothes that you probably already own.
0: Right. Um, And we'll talk, and we'll talk about those two later. We'll save all the gear and all that kind of stuff for, you know, towards the end of the conversation, because that's, you know, I don't, (laughs) that's what everybody wants to know right up front all the time. What do I need to go get? What can I buy immediately? However, um, guys, the it's less about the gear here in this, uh, in this talk and more so about the education it takes to actually get yourself prepared to go outside and hunt. Mm-hmm. In North America,
1: we have this amazing system of public lands, like other countries, the, um, many other countries, I think most other countries, I'm, I'm not sure entirely, they don't really have public hunting land. Mm. like uh if you go to you know pretty much any african country the hunting that takes place there is exclusively on private land any public land is like a national park where there's no hunting allowed oh i had no Um, idea about that and um you know some states have more lands than others but pretty much every single state in america I, i you're within a half hour drive of somewhere that you can go hunting for free um, wow. as long as you have a hunting license. And if you live in state, hunting license isn't very expensive. Most, most in-state hunting licenses are like 30 bucks.
0: Right. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? I just had a question. I'm sorry to break into, into that real quick, but for yeah. me, so <laughs> my background, I got busted selling pot when I was younger, man. And now I have mm-hmm. a felony. <laughs> and so I can't shoot, uh, explosion projectiles. That's like out of my range. So, I'm the type of person Mm -hmm. that needs to focus on bow hunting. And so I'm just curious, what are the pros and cons of, you know, rifle hunting versus bow hunting?
1: Yeah, so like nine out of ten people who come to me are like, oh man, I really want to go bow hunting for deer. When can we go soon? And every single time I'm like, slow down, dude. Like really the analogy that I have for you is that you're gonna try and start a video game on expert mode, like you're gonna get destroyed. Okay. Um, <laughs> because, like, particularly with a vertical bow. Now, with a crossbow, uh, it you have to check and see if it's something that's available in your state. Not every state allows crossbow hunting, but um, it's a an amazingly great um, crossover, you know, introductory weapon. Um, And it's also a really fun weapon for experienced hunters as well. So like just the, the simple shooting of a vertical compound or recurve bow is so much more challenging that to do well than that of a rifle or a shotgun that um, it really, you're setting yourself up for a lot of misery because when you actually are there and there is finally a living thing in front of you that's moving around p- behaving unpredictably and uh you know moving between obstructions and you're worried about taking a safe shot and an and a clean shot and all this um while you're trying to deal with all of that stuff your body is going to be dumping an enormous amount of adrenaline into your blood like as soon as you even see that animal, your heart rate just instantly skyrockets. Oh man! I've had times when my heart is pounding so hard, and this is just for like a doe in a cornfield that I can actually see the crosshairs of, of a rifle moving, to your, like off your target pulse. and on target, just from my heart. Right, right. So, like, you know, learning to like get over that hump you know, and, and actually like deal with that intense adrenaline rush to make everything all come together at once is really uh, a big thing to do. And to, and to add a vertical bow on top of that initially is a, is a really big challenge that I don't recommend unless, you know, unless you just have a whole lot of time to put into it.
0: Or if I'm forced to, right? Because if you're you're forced to,
1: Yeah. Um, and so if you have access to crossbows in your state, I highly recommend it. Um, you can get good quality, you know, like inexpensive crossbows and they are very accurate. They're very powerful. Um, you can use them. You can put a uh, blunt tips on them and shoot them at small game very effectively, or you can put a broad head on them and kill, you know, as big of game as there is um so they're they're quite versatile in that way obviously you couldn't um shoot them it's not safe or effective to shoot them at like a flying duck or a goose right. or something but um you know for squirrels and for uh, deer for turkey um they're quite effective and that's that'd be my recommendation
0: okay cuz you know i have some um some friends who are pretty deep within the primitive skills community and a lot of them they carry simple homemade slingshots, man. How do you feel about that?
1: Ooh, man. I used to do that when I was a kid. Well, I'd have to like steal it, you know, out of the like spot where my dad had hit it so that I couldn't. But I used to, when I was a kid, I would hunt with anything I could. Yeah. You know, we grew up, um, you know, I was really lucky. Our the property we grew up on was four acres and there were a bunch of woods behind our house. That was like a horse farm. And so I would go around hunting, you know, often around our bird feeder, (laughs) squirrels and doves with a blowgun, a homemade blowgun and with, um, and with a slingshot. And, uh, you know, it's difficult, it's very difficult to be successful. I can tell you, um, especially with the homemade blowgun, you know, like to get, to get a, you know, a shot, even if you hit something like, to get enough power and like cutting force on there to, to kill, um, is tough. I hit stuff that I didn't kill. Um, same way with the slingshot. I, I hit a few doves that I, you know, you know, there's a puff of feathers and then they fly away. Oh no! Um, but I was successful. Um, a couple of times, you know, I hit a dove in the head with a rock and it was perfect. It was like a beautiful kill. I cooked it when my parents got home. So they oh, didn't great. know they didn't, uh, <laughs> using it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, a fun thing to do, but it's an ultra challenge, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you is, and- well, you know what? It's just, it's funny to me because, you know, um, uh, it's again, it's that like that level of, um, entry for people. And plus I think it was like, you know, it's easy to conceal a little pocket, you know, a little something in your pocket with some, mm-hmm. some whatever bearings or whatever you're going to be using. Yeah. But, um, Yeah, it's just interesting to me because, you know, I want to do this, but then the idea of, you know, hunting humanely, right? I have a friend, Daniel Mm -hmm. Vitalis, who runs the Rewild Yourself podcast. And, you know, he talks about this subject a lot. And he he says, yeah, for example, if you're going to be bow hunting, you have to understand that, yeah, you may injure an animal and then you may never see that animal again. And that animal just goes off and suffers and dies. And of course, it's Mm going to be part of the circle of life. But again, you didn't get the satisfaction and How many times are you going to have to go through that before you actually get a clean kill? And it's something where, you know, you feel like you can continue going on with this. So for me, it's like, all right, I want to start. But hearing you say that it's like the most difficult thing, you know, to start on game level 100 with bow hunting, it's like, damn, for someone like myself, I just feel kind of trapped that way. Like, I I guess I would need a mentor for sure. If somebody out there is like myself, and you're in the Bay Area, by the way, please let me know. If you are someone that needs to start with a bow, start off with if and check your 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 state's laws, by the way, because in California, I'm pretty sure you can't use a crossbow and you can't use a blowgun, which shocked the hell out of me, by the way. I think California is one of the few states that can actually use a blowgun. But um, again, check into your own state laws and see what you can and cannot do. But I think one of the the main differences here is. Um, do something where you get a little bit of success in the beginning, right? You get a little momentum yeah. where yes. you get that like, ooh, I can do this kind of feeling. So don't go off starting like, okay, you know what? I'm going to be this badass primitive archer and I'm going to go riding gallantly into the, you know, the countryside horseback. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of thing. Stalking. Be real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's let's be realistic about it and find help. But that brings me to some of the game that you were talking about. You were talking about pigeons and doves and all these squirrels and smaller things that we can hunt. But there's also invasive species, right? Like I know California has a big problem with boar. Are you into advocating hunting invasive species?
1: Absolutely, man. Um, You know, in in New Jersey, we don't really have many uh, invasive things that you can hunt. There are some wild pigs here. Um, down in the southern part of the state, but it's not nearly the problem that it is in uh, some of the southern states and in California. You know, like Texas, Louisiana, um, Florida. They they each have these uh, really tough, um, you know, invasive populations of wild po- wild pigs. And um, I almost said wild pogs. That's <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> Um, which, which are, you know, kind of like half feral pig and half, uh, you know, Eurasian boar that have like interbred in the wild. Um, and, uh, I definitely recommend people, you know, if, if you want to, um, have your first big game hunting experience and you, you know, are willing and able to travel going to one of these states and, uh, uh and helping them shoot some hogs is a great way to do that. Um, you know, most, most of the time you can find ranches that will offer guided hunts for them. And you're sort of, you know, paying to do everyone a favor. Um, and they'll often guarantee you, you know, like there's so many pigs here. You come here for three or four days and we'll guarantee you that you're going to get, you know, oh, one or
0: two pigs. It's crazy. What is an unlimited? Can you explain what unlimiteds are for people like duck unlimiteds, whitetail unlimited, you know, trout unlimited, all this kind of stuff. What, what are those uh, groups or agencies that, that are doing that? Those are conservation
1: organizations. Um, So ducks unlimited, which uh, I am a member of and volunteer for is the world's largest wetlands conservation organization. Um, They were started in the 1930s during the dust bowl. Um, by a bunch of affluent, politically active duck hunters and uh, biologists who recognized that um, the biggest problem that, you know, at the time, continental waterfowl populations were at a dangerous, historic, low level. And they were, you know, desperately trying to do something about it. So they started this organization to um, both... Politically lobby for um, beneficial legislation Mm. to protect wetland areas. But also they fund, uh, they actively fund scientific research to monitor the populations, to understand what they need to be successful. And then to both, they both directly, they purchase land to set aside permanently for um, you know either for hunting or for refuge purposes, they uh, they arrange for um, different types of land easements. They help landowners find them, and they they you know lobby the the government and the farm bill to um, to preserve wetland habitats, particularly in places where these birds are breeding or where they migrate through in order to increase their, um, you know, increase the population to help them thrive. And they do it in a, uh, you know, very holistic way. You know, wetlands are such an important part of the overall ecosystem of the world and, you know, of the country. And so um, while the, the like, you know, initial and stated goal of, you know, there being more ducks to hunt is the, Thing and it is funded primarily by hunters. um, There's a massive ecological benefit to the work that they do, you know, it's a very holistic thing. So, Ducks Unlimited does that. Trout Unlimited focuses on trout, particularly wild trout. And wild trout they require high quality rivers and streams, good water. So, you know, Trout Unlimited is also a, a big river clean, you know, clean water advocacy program, right? These things are all related. You know, this is why so many times I'm like, people who are, uh, you know, conservationists who are against hunting have so much more in common with hunters than most hunters, than people who um, are not willing to put their time or money into uh, making, you know, the wild places of of our country cleaner and more productive, um, you know, there was a time when in this country, wild turkeys were almost hunted into extinction and, um, they're delicious.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I got a couple right here. I could just go out back. They're all over the place over here. Yeah.
1: That's largely thanks to the wild Turkey Federation. Well, thank you. Wild um, Turkey Federation. I do you know, appreciate They you. put in a ton of work collaborating with, um, collaborating with you know, state fish and game departments all across the country to trap and relocate turkeys all across, you know, their previously natural range. And now, yeah, every single state has um, healthy populations and many states have very abundant populations of wild turkeys. Um, you know, I could go on. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does this for elk, and now they're helping you know elk to be reintroduced to eastern states where they were wiped out when settlers were here. So, you know, all of these, um, you know, pheasants on pheasants forever. All, all of these organizations are doing this kind of stuff.
0: No, I love that, and it's important that we we highlight those people, especially in this community, because those are the type of people that this audience absolutely wants to support, one hundred percent. So we've been talking a lot about hunting, a lot about some of the things it takes to get into hunting. I know we're going to talk about gear. Don't worry, guys. Just hold on for it. But before we get into that, there's like a beginning part of it, right? Preparation, learning about the animal, having an awareness, learning your bio region and getting out there and kind of um, participating. And then there's the actual act of hunting. And then there's a, a whole nother process after we get done hunting, right? So we have an animal. We killed the animal now what? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh,
1: What they say in the, um, in the hunting world is now the work begins. Um, Particularly (laughs) particularly if we're talking about uh, something as big as a deer or even larger.
0: Um, I would, I would love for you to just really, get visceral about this, you know, tell people what are the, the truth, the realities, what does it actually take to do this? Because it's hard work. I mean, for the people that actually procure your food guys, I mean, I really want some deep respect and some honor because, um, you know, it takes a lot of work. People don't realize what it takes to actually be a hunter. So Fisher, please.
1: Yeah. I mean. It's uh, you know the first step, of course, is locating it, which sometimes can be a very intense and difficult process. hands, hands on your knees, looking for little specks of blood in the dark um, uh, for sometimes long distances, you, hopefully not, but sometimes, um, you know, or pushing around in the brush to find a duck that's down. Mm. Um, and then once you've got them, um, you want to field dresses, so you that means to remove all the internal organs. Um, and I, I don't mind the process. Uh, I find that, um, you know, as long as the, especially if it's a good clean shot, that's just through the lungs and doesn't puncture the stomach or anything. It's, there is a smell to it, but it's not like a foul smell that you, right. make you throw up or anything. Um, it is going to be very bloody. Um, so, but you know, you make a, basically you make an incision from the bottom of the sternum all the way down to the pelvis And you pull the intestines and the stomach out, and then you cut through the diaphragm, and you cut up, uh, if you can, uh, you'll cut up through, uh, you know, the ribs along the sternum to open up the chest and make it easier to get up and cut the trachea and cut the esophagus. And at that point, you pretty much can just, like, pull all that stuff out. There's connective tissue along the spine. Um, So, you know, you trim away the rest of the diaphragm as you go. You trim... um, you trim that connective tissue and you pull everything out and then you've got to uh, deal with the colon. So, you know, you've got like in a deer, you've got, there's poop in there that you, you kind of don't want in your deer. Um, you can get more or less involved in that than, you know, everybody's got a different thing. When I was a kid, we didn't do anything with that actually, you know, we just leave it. Um, Cause the truth of the matter is you're going to cook this meat So uh, a small amount of surface contamination of fecal bacteria is um, not going to hurt you. Um, But um, you know, so like some of the things that you can do for that is uh, like I'll bring zip ties with me, Mm. you know, and just sort of like, while it's still connected, I'll sort of like, you know, push the poop away from a partial portion of that, of that tube, zip tie it on both sides, and then you can cut it and nothing's gonna fall out. Smart, smart. Um, Also, if you you can do that, and then, um, you know, if you wanna go ahead and remove that stuff, yeah, you have to go, and uh, it's kinda graphic, you like, basically stick your knife and cut a circle around the anus, uh, because where the anus comes through, there's basically, there's like a hole through the pelvis there, so you can like, just stick your knife all the way in there, and you kinda go around a couple times, cut and then you basically cut that plug out you just pull that okay. out. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point you've got all the internal organs and everything removed and you got to, from that point you usually are going to drag the animal to whatever extraction road, um, you've got, uh, that can be, I've had really short drags and I've had <laughs> really long drags. Sometimes you can drive your car in there and sometimes you can't, it just
0: depends. When they say field dress, I mean they mean field dress. So I mean, as soon as you kill the animal, you locate it. That's the immediate first thing you do. Is there a, a specific reason behind that? I mean, if we don't do that immediately, what happens?
1: Yeah. So the primary reason to do that is to allow the meat, the rest of the meat, to start cooling down. Um, you know, the internal organs of a big animal represents twenty percent of its body weight. Um, so that contains a huge amount of heat, and also like Removing that now exposes, it allows so much heat to escape, you know, and cool air to come into the internal cavity. You know, also, you know, if there, if you have cut the stomach or the intestines open, now there, there are these, you know, digestive enzymes and, you know, bacteria that are coming into contact with your meat. So, um if that's happened you really want to remove that as soon as you can not so much because it's going to make your meat unsafe to eat but cuz it can give it a funky smell and taste Oh okay all right you know, not all the meat it's only going to be certain portions of the meat but um you know like the the hindquarters and the back straps are not going to be affected by that but um you know your a lot of your burger meat you know and your tenderloins which are on the inside of the chest cavity along the spine, that, that stuff, by the way, those are the best cuts on the whole animal. Okay. Yeah.
0: I wanted you to talk about that for a second too. By,
1: (laughs) by that, you know, at that point, a lot of the time, all I do with a deer is I take it to a butcher. You know, there's butchers who specialize in deer. They'll skin it. They'll age it in the fridge for a few days and then they'll cut it up. But uh, a lot of times too, I do butcher my own deer and, you know, uh, I can get into that too. If you want it's, it, but yeah, it's no, really, it, it's kind of a simple process. Yeah. I would you know love that, for
0: you to go into it. I mean, if you have time, please, I mean, I, I know our audience is probably, uh, they're really interested because I know I am.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That is one of the most common things that people ask me, what do you do with it? So, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, you could probably figure it out if you had to, you know, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat. And it's true of, um, of a I deer too, you know, I
0: mean, teachers also, by the way, I've, I've heard I literally that. heard of people going, have a hunting instructor when all is said and done, they leave the person with a knife and the animal and go at it, you know, like for their first time. And then, you know, Typically, more times than not, they are like, all right, well, you're probably going to be making a lot of sausage. <laughs> but um, <laughs> other, other than that, yeah, um, I've heard of people just like, hey, you know what? This is your first time. One of the f- easiest ways to do it, at, like for hogs at least. I had a friend recently actually mm-hmm. just have his first experience with a hog. And um, that's exactly what the, uh, the guy, you know, the, he was walking around with the owner. And the owner just had a gun with him walking around, you know, with, and then just found one, put the barrel to the, to the hog's head. Mm-hmm. and just, boom there we go um and it was funny because one of the things that he mentioned that he thought was kind of strange was that like none of the other animals even blinked twice they didn't look around they didn't you know nothing it was just another thing that happened and then the guy was like all right i'll catch you later <laughs> And then <he> just <laughs> off and was like all right this is what you got to do so um yeah. i'm glad you know you're not going to leave that to us so go ahead tell us your experience with that what, what exactly does it take to actually like um you know, dress an animal or at least it's not dressing what dressing is actually removing the organs, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the main thing with that is you just want to take care not to puncture the stomach or the intestines, particularly the stomach is tricky because it has gas in it. it is usually putting outward pressure. And when you're first Mm -hmm. cutting through the abdominal wall, that's your primary time when you've got to be real careful. And usually what I'll do is I'll just gradually open that space up until I can see the stomach, which is white. You can Mm. see it through the membranes. And at that point, you can just poke your finger through. You can actually break the membranes with your fingers. And sort of like at that point, once you can get your fingers on the inside, Mm. you're able to cut without cutting the stomach open. And also, if you have a gut hook, you can use that as a safe way to open everything up like a zipper. Oh, okay.
0: Um, So they have a tool for that too called a gut hook? mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. most uh, A lot of um, like hunting knives are made with a gut hook on the back side. So that you can just um, you know, hook okay. it in there and zip. Okay. You know, and there's also special gut hooks. So then, when it comes to skinning, um, you know, a lot of a lot of times you hang them up by their uh, their back legs. There's like a, an Achilles tendon, right? You cut between. There's a space that you can create in there to um, you know get a gambrel or a rope in there. And I use a little block and tackle, um, which is a great device that you know gives you like a four to one pulling advantage. So you can lift a whole lot of weight just by yourself. So, you know, I'll tie that up and then lift them from that. But I actually prefer to hang them from their head. Now I find that it's uh, easier for me to skin. Um, so what I'll, what I'll do is while it's still on the ground, I I take a fillet knife. I prefer to to skin with like a fisherman's fillet knife. Okay. Um, You make an incision, uh, upside down with the blade, you stick it under around where the knee is. And then you just cut all the way back to your center cut where you gutted the deer. And you do that on each leg all the way across. And then um, you do that same thing. You go up the neck all the way to the chin. And then you cut around the top of the head, you know, like right at the base of the head. Okay. And then from that point, you can start, you know, peeling it back and just cutting, you know, cutting wherever there's tension, trying not to cut the skin, trying not to cut the meat. It's easy at the neck on a deer because the, the neck meat on it, the neck skin on a deer is super thick. Uh, oh, okay. It's tough, so, you know, you're not really going to cut through that unless you're really trying to. Um, and then once you kind of start to get it going, you can actually grab that and pull it and you can peel a lot of the deer. If you've got a good solid thing, um, you actually could peel the deal, deer all the way from there. But most of the time people aren't strong enough. Um, you know, but there are people who will like connect their, you know, connect a rope to their car. Oh, no, I knew it. <laughs> you can just drive off and just peel the deer right away. Um, but you know, it's pretty simple, you know, you're just pulling it down and cutting, you know, where there's tension and um you know, the more experience you get with it, the faster you'll get at it. The one thing about that too though is that um, you know, if you're saving the hide, you want to be really careful not to cut it in other ways. And if um and when you get down to the the ankles on the back legs or what looks like the knee, but is actually their ankle, there are these glands called the tarsal glands that uh they use for uh you know. It's, it's, they're very powerfully scented and they urinate on them also while they are um, in the breeding season. So uh, you want to try and avoid touching those and then touching the meat okay. after that. Oh, that's very it important. It will impart a funkiness to the meat. And so that's one of the other reasons I like to start at the head because when I get down to the bottom, I can just pull on like you know, the upper part of the leg meat and cut underneath where those tarsal glands are and never actually have to touch them.
0: When you um, hang them by the head, how exactly do you do that?
1: Um, well, you know, you just, uh, you create like a, like a slip knot, you know, so that it tightens down tighter, the harder you pull. And then I connect that to the, um, you know, I connect that to my um, block and tackle and lift them up. Okay. Usually I'll take one leg, one of the lower legs, and I'll secure that with a rope to something else to just kind of stabilize it. Okay. Yeah. Um, then at that point, you're just quartering the deer. Um, so the sh- front legs, the shoulders, there are floating. They actually are not, the bone is not connected. And you can just sort of like pull it open and cut it right off, you know, set that aside. Um, the, the hind quarters are much harder to get off, um, you know, because you've got this like deeply set socket joint. Mm-hmm. So you've got to cut it all around
0: through you know, that muscle you Just
1: follow the line of where you see the muscle and you cut in there and you pull the leg out and get down so you can get down into that joint with your knife. And this is another reason why I like these little fillet knives because they can get in there and okay. cut the tendons inside the joint and then it'll start to open up and you can cut it away from the hip bone. All right. You do that on both sides. And at that point, what you've got left is your back straps along the spine, your tenderloins on the inside of the spine. Um, and then all of your like scrap meats. So like you've got, everything else pretty much is going to be burger unless like it's uh, like around the neck, you can create roasts out of that meat. Um, It's pretty straightforward. You know, you just go and start, you know, start where like it connects to a bone and fillet it off. You can cut the the abdominal meat away, cut the meat off the top of the ribs, cut the brisket out, you know, basically just feel around where it's soft. How long
0: does something like that take? I mean, if you were to break it up, say like on average, could you break it up as like a total how long it would take to field dress an animal skin and then portion the animal out?
1: whole process for me typically to go from a live animal to packages in my freezer is about four hours.
0: Oh, and this is an experienced hunter though, you know, guys. So four hours though, um, that's, that's pretty good. That, that sounds like a good four hours spent to me. And, and again, Fisher, you and I are going to have to connect for sure after this. Um, I love to come up there. I got some family in, um, in New England up there. So when I'm up there, I'm going to have to take a trip down. And we're going to have to hang out sometime, man.
1: You got to come help us with our, uh, our deer problem, man. New Jersey's got way more deer than need to be here. so
0: I would love to. But again, I got to start with the bow. <laughs> I got to start with the bow. Well, we
1: can get crossbows here, though. So you could, you could uh, use a crossbow. I can teach you how to be a crack shot with a crossbow in an hour. Ready to hunt. Okay.
0: All right. I didn't know. I didn't know I was able to use a crossbow. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm glad that that's still in my wheelhouse. Okay, good. So guys, we are moving on to the final section here, almost the final section just before the call to the wild. Um, All right, let's talk gear. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it actually takes to get into it. Like what are some of the things you would recommend every hunter have and some of the things maybe you see every hunter have that maybe Mm -hmm. you could leave out because it's just kind of (laughs) support. Surplus? Oh my gosh! Superfluous? Thank you. I don't. (laughs) I'm gonna have a hard time with that one. Yeah. So more than we need. (laughs) Yeah. If (laughs) can you maybe run through a list of some of your favorite equipment, some of the things you think maybe we need as a as a beginner hunter, and maybe some of the things you think that we don't need. Mm Hmm.
1: Uh. Well, aside from your weapon, which Mm -hmm. is the most important thing.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about those.
1: Well, if you're able to purchase a gun. Um, uh, a 12 gauge or 20 gauge shotgun with a smooth bore is the most versatile thing that you can buy. Um, it's possible to hunt everything from squirrels to big game with that. Um, it is not the most effective thing for big game for its distance capabilities, right? But, um, with a single purchase, you can in any state hunt most anything with it. Um, if you're a grown, you know, adult man, a 12 gauge is usually the best bet. And if you're a a smaller man or a a petite lady, a 12, a 20 gauge shotgun would be the way to go. It'd be a lot easier for you to handle. Um, and then, uh, after that, the next most important thing is a good pair of waterproof boots. Mm. Um, comfort is extremely important to hunting success. If you are not able to uh, have a good time while you're out there, if your feet are soaked, and cold while you're trying to sit in a tree stand, you're not going to sit there long enough to be successful. So uh, that's one place where it's really worth spending your money on something quality. And if you're going to be hunting in cold weather, you really want to have boots that are insulated because one okay. of the mill boots, while great for early season hunting, um, you know, leave something to be desired <laughs> to be Fire. Oh, yes, all right. sitting still. Most people don't understand, you know, if you've never sat outside in the cold for two hours and not moved, right? Um, you have no appreciation for just how much heat your body loses. It just like gradually gets colder and colder and colder and colder because you're not generating any heat moving around. Right. Um, so you need a lot more layers than you might think. Okay. Um,
0: do you have like a personal pair of boots that you would recommend? Because there was one that was actually recommended to me the other day. It was the uh, I believe they're called Boggs Bog mm-hmm. boots. They're they're like uh, uh, another guest that I'm going to be having on. Her name is Erin Cedar Song. She um, she ran the first nature school, uh, nature kindergarten here in North America, and for all of her students, including her teachers and children they're required to wear these type of boots, the bog boots. And apparently they've been highly rated from outdoor magazine, all this stuff. They're just basically like, they've got like, um, like seal material, like, um, like you would get from a wetsuit, like a neoprene and then yeah. like just plastic insulation. Um, really, really high quality boots though. Um, is, is there a brand that you would recommend?
1: Yeah. bogs are good. Muck boots are good. Rocky makes really good boots. Um, you know, it's, Yeah. The thing that I would recommend people do is go on like Amazon or go on Cabela's website and look at the reviews because that'll tell you pretty much everything.
0: That's what I do for sure.
1: Um, You know, all of these boots, they're all pretty specialized. They're better for some things than others, but a, a pair of boots like that would be great because they're versatile. You know, I would go for something that gives you more insulation and more like ability to walk through deep water and mud mm. as like, and then like if you're a little sweaty in your boots in the summertime, that's fine. You know, if you don't, most of the time, if you don't walk through creeks that are a foot deep, that's fine. You no, know, but sometimes you will. So I do, I really like to use like these knee high rubber boots or, you know, they're, oh. they're rubber sometimes and they're You know, neoprene too, it's the same idea. You're fully waterproof up to your knee. And so you still, um, you know, they're a little bit more cumbersome to walk in than like a, a, a boot that's made for walking in. Right. So if you're like out West somewhere and you're going to be elk hunting in the high country, you really don't want those boots.
0: Right. Okay.
1: But, uh, you know, if you're, but for most other, you know, a lot of other kind of hunting where you're not going to be covering so much ground or doing like proper mountain hiking, then uh, uh high rubber boots are definitely the way to go.
0: Okay. Yeah. And um, um, do you have a, do you have thoughts on camouflage? Cause I hear this like debate going back and forth between hunters and camouflage all the time, mm-hmm. whether or not they feel it's necessary or it isn't necessary. What, what What's your personal stand on that?
1: Um, you can never have too much camo, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All
1: right. I mean, you can kill stuff, you, you know, everything, happens and anything is possible right like uh (laughs) you can kill stuff in your backyard in a white t-shirt uh when the situation is right right Um, you know what i mean like uh, as long as you're in earth tones uh you're you've gone a long way okay like if you're in greens or browns or grays that match more or less the the general palette of the the you know, environment that you're going to be in, you're doing pretty well. But camouflage, it's very specific to the animal, right? To their eyes. Like with a wild turkey, they, you know, with most birds, they have really good eyes, high definition in color. So full range of color. So like when I turkey hunt, I wear a ghillie suit. Like, oh, wow. You get in close to something with 310 degree vision, an insane degree of attention, oh, and crazy. Perfect, right? With a yeah. deer they don't see all the colors. They don't have the best depth of, you know, depth perception. Um, and I'm usually hunting them from an elevated position where I am out of their general, like, you know, Field periphery. Of view. Yeah. Looking. So, you know, in that situation, yeah, sometimes I don't, you don't even need a face mask if, if it's early season and there's lots of leaves on the trees. Um, you know, so it's very situational. And like ducks, if you're duck hunting, you really got to blend in, especially later in the season once they've learned, you know, oh shit, people are trying to kill us. <laughs> right. uh, you know, get real cautious about where they land. And so they'll fly around, and if anything looks amiss, they don't land with the, with the decoys. Um, so you need to have camouflage that perfectly matches wow. what you're in. You need to be
0: invisible. Right, you said you're in a full um, ghillie suit, right? Like that's <laughs> for turkeys. Oh yeah. Well, for turkeys. I mean, I mean a full ghillie and for those not aware of what a ghillie's suit is, if you've ever played Modern Warfare, if you've ever played any type of video game or watch any type of movie as far as snipers are concerned, it's that full body suit where yeah. like um, you know, it ju- they just look like they blend 100% into the environment. It's not just simple camouflage, it's like a full piece of equipment that you're wearing. So, that goes to show you the extreme that people will get into to try and deceive or at least trying to um, trick these animals. I mean, how much, you know, just, just for peace of mind, how much does it cost? How much does a a, a ghillie suit even cost?
1: You'd be surprised what you can get on the internet these days. Really? When you first started making them available, it would be like a couple hundred bucks, but you could probably get a a pretty decent ghillie suit for a hundred bucks.
0: Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, minus the ghillie suit, unless you guys are really <laughs> going to be, um, <laughs> getting crazy out there. But for beginners, what, what are some of the other uh, necessary pieces of equipment other than obviously your weapon and a good pair of boots?
1: Um, a good knife okay. that is really sharp folding or fixed blade, you know, that you can carry on a belt. Um, and is, um, only, you only really need a knife that's like three to four inches long. Okay. ideally if you're going to be hunting big game get one with a gut hook on it it'll make your life way easier and a fillet um, knife right uh, i would definitely recommend getting a fillet knife yeah it's the okay. next like super versatile blade you can um you know you can fillet fish with it and you can fully butcher a deer with it i really like you know okay most of the cutting work of butchering a deer with a, just a fillet knife
0: okay cuz i've seen on amazon they have these kits that you can purchase for i mean they're relatively inexpensive. And I look, I'm, you know, I'm looking into purchasing one for myself, just for my vehicle, just in case we run into any roadkill or any you mm-hmm. know, opportunity like that. But it's like a full kit with like a little bone saw. It's got like maybe a little fillet knife and everything in there, but it's like, um, you know, 50 bucks or something, but you get like a full set. Would you recommend yeah. someone get one of those?
1: Definitely. I, I haven't gotten one mostly because over my, course of my life, I just picked up enough things. Right. That I kind of already have that. The one thing I really don't have is a proper bone saw, but I have a hacksaw, which, which uh, works as yeah. bone saw. Um, so yeah, those things are, are great.
0: Um, Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Well then you know what? That's guys, that's all the gear we're going to mention here. Okay. At least on this episode. <laughs> and I know that, you know what? We've taken up um, uh, just about time here, but uh, towards the end of every conversation, we got to know exactly what Fisher Neal's exact call to the wild is for us. What are we going to go do after this episode? Because I'm excited. I'm rubbing my hands together, guys, because this has been like a long-awaited episode for me. And typically, it takes me a while. I've got a lot of episodes in queue for you guys right now, but I think I'm going to work on this one today to release tomorrow. (laughs) So, um, I'm excited to get this one out. So, yeah. uh, Fisher, what is your call to the wild for us? What exactly would you like us to go do?
1: I want you to go and get your hunter education course taken and passed that that way you can actually follow through with your desire to do this and you don't need anyone to be there with you you know so google search hunter education in whatever state you are sign up for a class and take it it's free completely free it just requires a little bit of your time and for the rest of your life you'll be able to legally purchase a hunting license and go and try this thing out. So even if you know, it doesn't work out, that you can't afford it, you don't have time this year, whatever, you'll have done that. And when later, three years from now, you finally get around to uh, trying it out for the first time, you'll be able to follow through on that impulse.
0: There's no barriers to entry at that point, right? Other than your own desire and will to actually get up and get out there into the wild guys. So that's awesome. Fisher, I super appreciate that, man. Before we go, how do people listening get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, well, um, the simplest thing to do is to go to my website, uh, which is learntohuntnyc.com. You can also, um, I can can give a really nice plug for the Wix um, software service on the website because they got me search engine optimized if you google search learn to hunt i'm probably going to be the top hit wherever you live um but so you can do either one of those things go to my website i have a ton of information on there about what i do um for you know it's mostly for people who live in the tri-state region that i'm able to reach but you know i'm an entrepreneur so anybody who wants to contact me and of course all my contact information is there i'm uh, more than willing to uh figure something out if somebody has a you know, particular idea that they want want to get me involved with so
0: so I'm trying to do something here with ancestral health radio where we have like an educational hub a library of ancestral health practitioners and rewilders and people like yourself who fall in between where they can kind of bridge that gap for others and I'm hoping maybe sometime in the future I can reach out to you and you can maybe participate in a little bit of that in the future and we can talk about more about that at a later time but I just want to say thank you, Fisher, for the work that you do, the education that you provide to others. And then I'm humbled, you know, to be in your presence because I think it's so important, the, the mission and what you're doing. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sadden me that, you know, your life goal is to become a, you know, a really good looking actor out there in Hollywood. But, um, (laughs) you know, I appreciate what you're doing to make that hustle happen right now because, you know, it's really helping people like myself and others around you who are really trying to just reconnect with this lost piece of themselves. You know, it's kind of like a peace of mind. I I feel like once I learn this, it's going to be like, I've, I found a piece of me that was lost. So, it's very integral to me and and people in this, this community. So I just want to say thank you. And it's very, very much appreciated.
1: Man, it is my pleasure. I really enjoy doing it. And, um, and you're right, man, you'll, you will be a changed person. There's no doubt after you have gone into the woods, hunted something brought it home and eat it. And especially also if you've been able to bring back enough to share it with someone else, Mm that for me is uh, I think the most rewarding thing of all. When I get to share something I've hunted with other people, you have um, so much more satisfaction and appreciation, uh, you know, for what you've, what you've done.
0: And you know what you just real quick, I know, (laughs) I know we're at time, but you're also a forager, right? It helps. It's beneficial to be a forager. And in your mind, what is the most, what is the most beneficial piece to being a forager when it comes to being a hunter?
1: Well, it's the same thing as also like, you know, hunting multiple things at the same time, right? Like, you know, if I'm out deer hunting, but I also, you know, and so I'm like going out and I'm scouting for deer. I'm also looking for mushrooms and I'm looking for like autumn olives that are ripe and ready to go. I'll take my, I've always got a little sack in my, you know, thing. And, or sometimes if it's not really, you know, in the summertime, it's less hunting season, but there's mushrooms out there and there's all these vegetables out there that can be harvested in berries and nuts and so I might go out looking for that stuff and oh holy crap I just found a giant trail that I didn't know about before like here's a rub from last year that I didn't know about before you know and you know now I'm learning like some as I learned to identify different kinds of edible plants now I'm like man I got to get my my oak tree game going so now I'm like yeah. you know I've downloaded uh, exactly you know a field guide that's like really detailed how to identify different species of oak trees because there's a bunch of them and the deer have favorites you know so like that learning how to identify plants helps me be better able to identify oak trees um and beech trees and everything and that, all and that helps of you like-
0: find the game right like that yeah. that helps you in just the most integral that's what i love right like you come full circle when you hit this kind of space i feel like Um, in the end it's like, all right, well, I came in here looking just to like, I don't know, take care of myself. I'm just looking to really build a little sovereignty around my health. You know, I feel that's a, one of the main gateways for a lot of people is they're like, you know what, I'm kind of beat up. I need some help. And then the further they take this path, the more they meet people like myself, they meet people like you. And hopefully, you know, they're, they're listening to this episode realizing, oh my gosh, this is easy. This is like, We can just go do this. It's free to go get this education that he's talking about. Let's hop on it. So, Fisher, this has been an amazing time. I know I've taken up a lot of your time. We're going to get you on another episode for sure if you feel okay with that.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: Awesome. All right, guys. Well, hey, that wraps up today's episode with Fisher Neal of LearnToHuntNYC.com. Remember to head back for show notes, resources, and more at AncestralHealthRadio.com. And as always, to all my aspiring hunter-gatherer gardener friends out there, remember to take a walk on the wild side. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network or, at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.